the empathy is real and the emotion is real from people that want to be allies. I, I believe that in my heart of hearts. It's the accountability measures in the circles that you're in that we can't speak to. It's the off-color joke that we would kind of let slide, that we can't do that. We all have different audiences of influence. And so we have to prepare ourselves so that we can be effective in our audiences of influence. You're listening to the Authenticity is Contagious podcast with Kathleen O'Grady, where she and her guests discuss what it means to choose your authentic self, to remove negative energy, to live a calmer life, and to become more, a more heart-centered person, a stronger leader, a better partner, and a friend. Come join us on this journey of creating the life you've been missing out on, one intention at a time. Here's your host, authentic leadership coach and founder of Rally Coaching and Rally Coaching Academy, Kathleen O'Grady. I think we might as well just dive in because I've been, I've been visualizing this conversation since a couple of days ago and most importantly uh, this morning when watching the news on my phone. And I've already shed some tears today. So welcome, everybody. We are here on the Authenticity is Contagious podcast, and it is May 28th, 2020. I'm going to introduce my amazing guests to you in a moment. But first, I want to start out by saying that we're coming into our sixth episode, give or take, of this brand new podcast. And so far, we've been very committed to being real about what's going on in the world and who people are and and our potential, but also our darkness. So I, I feel like today's episode in particular, there's no way we can put a positive spin on it. It just is what it is. I am here graced with Mildred Edwards and Donald Thompson. Mildred works with me at Raleigh Coaching Academy. She is also the owner of ME Coaching and Consulting, ME standing for Mildred Edwards, and also the the importance of, of knowing yourself. And Mildred I could take a whole episode just describing her accomplishments. Mildred, among other amazing contributions to humanity, is chair of the Kansas Advisory Committee for the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. I I could go on and on. Then we have Sir Donald Thompson, a very near and dear person who keeps popping up in my life in all the best ways. And I have to read from a piece of paper because he's extremely accomplished too. So here we go. Donald is the CEO of the Diversity Movement. He's the host of season one of the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. He is the author of an ebook titled Diversity and Inclusion in the Workplace. He is a certified diversity executive and conducts workshops with C-suite executives of leading organizations who are looking to develop, expand, or optimize their diversity and inclusion practices. Welcome, Don. So here we are. I really wanted to just create the space for this conversation to play out. I don't really have a script. I don't really think we know from one minute to the next uh, how how to feel about everything that's going on in the world. But when I checked in with Mildred uh, yesterday evening in advance of our conversation today, it's just like every time I scroll through my newsfeed, there's something else that is just atrociously occurring 
to people of color in this country. You know, it's one thing to talk about diversity and inclusion in the workplace, and that's extremely important, but it's it's a much larger pandemic of its own. And so I just kind of want to start out very generalized and hear from each of you for maybe a couple of minutes what you're passionate about in this very moment that you want people to hear as they listen to this podcast. Don and I had an opportunity to talk and just to really think about what are some of the best ways that we could frame our thinking around this issue. It is big and it is growing at rapid rates. So when we think about how we best serve um, the communities, the organization, and the people that we work with, I'd like to approach this from the perspective that we as a society have got to get better at not only investigating and documenting all of the things that we are experiencing, but also framing our next steps in a way that we're creating allies and we're creating uh, support systems and that we are deliberate about addressing the issues that are coming. Like you said, Kathleen, watching this in news feeds and yes, I, it tugs at our hearts, but we have got to make progress. This is atrocious and we're better than this. Absolutely. Don? Yeah, for me, it's... um you know, it's it's beyond disappointing, right? It, it's almost like I'm one of the hardest people to get discouraged because I have an optimistic view on almost everything, right? And challenges are meant to grow your perseverance and your strength. But even within that optimism, there is a reality of how do you survive in a country that doesn't love you? Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you operate in an arena to where the rules are set against you, that's fine as an African-American male. I get that. I've been raised with that perspective, that if I'm going to grow and achieve, I've got to do twice as much as the next person. Got it. But I should be able to go take a jog. I should be able to bird watch in Central Park. I should be able to have the laws of this country that protect me from a death sentence for a petty crime or even a felony or even any an atrocious crime. I shouldn't be subject to an environment that it's okay to take my life with no repercussion and then it's okay to make me less than as a part of the institutional structure of our country. The last few days hasn't changed my perspective in terms of what's wrong. It has increased my resolve that we're past time for doing something in a substantial way. And the talk is past. We have to figure out how to address some of these systemic issues and bring everybody together in a way that we can do so, that we can really move forward. But it's it's pretty tough right now um, from, from where I'm sitting. Yeah, I don't know if there is a term for this in in the, I guess, D&I, for those that don't know what that is, it's diversity and inclusion. So in, in the terms of, of D&I, is there a word for what, you know, white people are feeling about just this overwhelming guilt? I don't, I don't know. In my opinion, I don't, I don't think it is this construct of the diversity inclusion component as much as when I talk to my friends of all backgrounds about some of the things that are going on, it is more of a function of your level of humanity. Like we're, we're, we're past 
the common structures of DNI and organizational change and different things. It's whether or not we have a country that we truly can be proud of and where we can be decent to other people or not. And yeah. we have to choose, right? And so to me, it's about human decency. And I think that supersedes any level of corporate or socioeconomic construct that we're talking about. It's whether or not we want to build a society that everyone has basic. Think about this. We talk a lot about other countries and human rights. Like we go to other countries as Americans and say, we want <laughs> yeah, to yeah. advocate for human rights because in America, we portray ourselves that we have a baseline of human rights that are here. We have to come to terms that it's not true. And that's going to be a hard element for us all to deal with is that the reality is we are not who we portray. And so therefore we're going to have to kind of dig deep enough and be in some level of truth and have to reinvent the soul of our country. And that's going to be a tough pull because a lot of people are going to resist the admission that we're not who we say. And until we do that, that's when we're going to be able to build the foundation to grow and become who we want to be right? Who we aspire to be. And so that's, I, I don't think there's a word for it, but I think human decency is in, in the DNI construct because we're at a human decency discussion. I agree. And I think some of the things that I, I think about is our country was founded on an inequitable distribution of economics, right? And so this power kind of uh, structure is created deliberately, we have been talking about naming, you know, we've been trying to call uh, things that are occurring and put names to them so we can better study them and we could better understand them and we can better articulate then what is happening and be more unified in how we're discussing some of these things that are happening. But the reality is, is that it it's always been present. We were founded based on that reality. And so until we are willing as a nation to break down the structures that have really allowed us to be at this place in such a vivid way. Now, has it always been occurring? Absolutely. Right. But we have gotten emboldened in how we are playing this, this situation out. And we have been permissive and we have been passive and we have not addressed this because it would have to take our really looking at how do we break and deconstruct something that we thought is okay. And it's got us this far. And um, it's really sad that there are people that aren't going to be willing to move and to lose in this because they have this zero sum mentality. For me to give up something, for you to have something, I'm losing. And so this whole consciousness raising that needs to happen, I think, is really what I'm more interested in our doing. We've done the how do we name it? How do we call it? How do we teach people what it is? How do we try to put in policies and, and police the issue in a way within corporations and organizations and, you know, and saying, gotcha, but, you know, enough already. How do we raise the consciousness of the uh, of our society in a way that we are operating as our best selves? It's really the question. Yeah, I would, I would say, you know, Kathleen, you mentioned the, the guilt that white people may feel. And I'm speaking for me personally, not my organization, but I, I don't, 
I don't need that. What we need from my perspective is to translate that energy because the empathy is real and the emotion is real from people that want to be allies. I, I believe that in my heart of hearts. It's the accountability measures in the circles that you're in that we can't speak to. It's the off color joke that we would kind of let slide that we can't do that. It's the PTA meetings at schools and really understanding what are we teaching around our history. It's about understanding what inclusive language is to the degree that we can have a much more frank but uplifting dialogue. So in my opinion, there's a lot of different things that we can do together in the how, even this platform today where we're giving ourselves the frame to speak and then we'll distribute it because we all have different audiences of influence. And so we have to prepare ourselves so that we can be effective in our audiences of influence. And so one of the things that we can all do if we're gonna make change, and I'll use a different from race, I have three daughters. I had to go through an evolution of not speaking kind of man speak and things that, that my daughters would say, you wouldn't say that if that was a man, right? Like they would, but they would call me out. They would bring me to account and they would hold me accountable to be better. They weren't judging me for where I was, but they were holding me accountable to be better in the next conversation because I created that freedom as I raised them to speak their mind and speak their whole truth. And so for white people on behalf of African-Americans, there's, country clubs that you're in. There's boardrooms that you're in that you can ask the question of why does everyone only look like us? There is onboarding that occurs in companies. And if there's nothing in that onboarding about diversity and inclusion and inclusive language and how to think about diversity even broader than race, then all of a sudden you're not using the leadership platform that we all have to do all that you can do. Right. And so those are some of the simple things that I think that that people that care and there's a lot of people that do can start to make changes in their community. When we talk about because you I want to tie together what you both just said, because it's really important when we talk about raising people's consciousness and creating alliances that are are not just all talk, but action. I feel like at least from the story you shared about your daughters, Don, and my experience of getting married three years ago to a Hispanic man. And just, you don't really get to empathize and understand people who are different until you love them. And so I really believe that love is the answer. That if we can really not focus on the elimination of fear and hate, but more focus on the development and the fostering of love, this could be the, the pivot point because that's what this is all about. It's, it's people not loving themselves and therefore trying to point the finger outward as to what's wrong with everybody else. Everybody who hates themselves looks for a scapegoat for that. And so, you know, in coaching and, and leadership, we see this a lot. It's the angry leaders, the, the bully leaders are the ones who are the most insecure. And so then, you know, you add socioeconomic differences, race differences, gender differences, and then you have like an absolute dumpster fire of, of fear and judgment. And so what, how do you put out the fire? So what I, what I come, keep coming back to is like the people who were standing over George, you know, they were like, 
I love this person. He's, he's part of my community. I can't let this happen. Something has to be done. But the people who don't love that person, they just stood around and let it happen. So I guess my question to you guys is, how do we access the love? You know, love to me, the opposite of love is not hate, it's fear. And everybody is doing what they can to protect themselves, right? The CEO who arrived at that position based on privilege is trying to protect that image. The police officer who is charged with just uh, capturing someone bigger, um, someone that is uh, they're afraid of, someone that they're threatened by just walking down the street, right? They fear their loss of life. When you think about individuals that have people moving into their neighborhoods that they don't like their lifestyles, be it gender related, be it sexuality related, or be it race related, and then how they show then the fear of their impression of the value of their neighborhood with someone moving in. Everyone is trying to retain some sort of semblance of, I belong here and I'm going to protect this, whatever it is. And I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose anything that I have, whether it's based on privilege or what have you. So we often think about love and asking people to, as Don said, you know, have a respect for humanity in a way that allows you, if, even if you don't love me, don't treat me as if I don't belong where you are because you're better, right? Uh, we're all divinely made and uniquely created. And when we talk about authentic authenticity through the work that we do, here we're out heralding, be yourself, you know, show up your best self and do the things that you got to do. But then we have these neurological pathways that have been created that say, work harder, do more. When you see someone that is different or the other, fear them because you might lose something as a result of their presence. And so until we're willing to say that we have these fight, flight, or freeze kind of responses to things that we fear and that we are no longer hunters and gatherers. We don't have to run down our breakfast or, you know, we we can stop. We can think, we can feel, and we could rationalize a better way of being by just being deliberate about it and deciding that we can do this through having a higher level of consciousness and being responsible for the reactions that we have. There's one thing to have a reaction. There's another thing to act it out. Yep, that's right. I mean, I I think that, you know, my athletic background, I'm the son of a football coach and my upbringing allowed me to spend time with a lot of different people in sports and from a lot of different backgrounds and, and also in my dad's profession. And a common goal helps unite people. Right. So if you think about our country after 9-11, right, it was one of the for, for about a month, two months, three months. Right. So I mean, America, the flag. Right. We had a common enemy. We were going to figure out who attacked uh, America. Fast forward to present day and we have a pandemic and we can't decide a country whether we should wear masks or not. 
the problem in the last 20 years is there's been an assault on truth. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, if I don't agree with something that is a fact, I can create my own facts, Mm -hmm. which then creates confusion and then people don't know who to trust. So our environment for loving, trusting, and working together has actually taken a very significant backwards trajectory because it's so difficult to know who's for you and who's against you, who's on the same side with you, who's not, because our leadership language is so aggressively negative throughout our country. And then what occurs is when these incidents occur, they often get dwarfed in terms of coverage, in terms of the amount of things that you can actually hear, perceive, and understand, because the macro information tunnel is me versus them, us versus them, us versus them. And if there were not video of this police officer with a knee on the neck of a black man and killing him, this would have been another thing that was easy to brush aside. The video can cut through the noise. We've got to figure out how do we create an environment where we're just as allergic to the reaction when we hear about it, when we read about it, when the numbers say that it's there, not just the times that we see the actual video. Because this is something in terms of inequity, in terms of violence against African-American males in particular, that is more than reoccurring. But I would say this, and, and try not to ramble, I do think that there are a group of people that are not black, that are white, that are Hispanic, that are Asian Indian, that don't wanna see us suffer in this way. And they want to know what to do. They want to know how they can be a part of change. And so a couple of things I like to share with people in terms of doing that very specifically is I do think education before action matters. Because when you do start to have a voice on something, you should have a foundation of knowledge. And so there are courses that you can take around diversity and inclusion. There are courses you can take on unconscious bias. You may not want to take to the streets and be a part of a a march on biases on policing. But you may be an employer that's gonna hire 10 people next month. And if you take unconscious bias training and you're a better manager and you're a better interviewer to give people that don't look like you a better opportunity, all of those little things work together to start making the change that we want in the systems. So I also wanna ask Mildred, what do you recommend to those of us that wanna be allies? It's really just giving deliberate and very, very deep thought to what can I do and who needs to feel what I feel in my circle, right? And these conversations, um, they can be structured or unstructured, right? Formal or informal. And just being able to say that I have, like Don said, access to a wide range of people that should we care enough to do something, we could make a difference. And so it starts with one individual at a time and each person reaching individuals that like them that really could rally on behalf of or in support of communities that are at risk. Communities that are experiencing disparity, communities that have inequities that have persisted over time. This is playing out in the uh, our culture right now 
in terms of the assault on the black male. But historically, we have had health disparities that have been inexistent and oftentimes deliberately perpetuated in the name of science on people of color. The way we think about the LBGTQIA population, right? And how we're responding to, we're passing policies so they could live their lives in the manner in which they, they desire. But then we're then having hate rise up on the other side of the city that is keeping them from purchasing the cake for the wedding. And so when we think about all of the things that people are doing, uh, gender-based, any isms, right? All the isms that our nation is confronted with on a day-to-day basis, the divisiveness by which we live our lives on a day-to-day basis, it's what are you doing to cross over, to learn more, to then rally people on behalf of what is right, right? What is true, what is real, and what is possible, and then creating actively ways in which you are playing a, a, a role in the solution, then if you are just stopping at empathy, it matters not. Yep. No, I, I think, I think Kathleen, the one thing I would add in specific for, for the wonderful work that you and, and Mildred are doing, if you think about executive coaching and the access that you have to current and emerging leaders, you have an opportunity to influence the influential. And that is a very, very important tip of the spear. And one of the things in my focus area with DNI and the diversity movement is I've got a full team that are looking at the broader construct of, of DNI and the workplace and different things. My personal focus is in the C-suite because being a business executive, being an entrepreneur, being an investor, I'm traveling in circles with leaders that if I get one or two a month to think different than they thought before, it gives exponential impact because they're deciding what companies get funded or not. They're deciding who gets promoted or not. They're deciding who gets hired. And this is the curveball piece, but a lot of fun. They're also supporting who gets elected. Well, that's very true. And I want to say thank you for, for pointing that out. And, and another thing that reminds me of, of, different classes that Mildred and I sat in on together at Raleigh Coaching Academy is that, you know, the whole purpose of of training new authentic leadership coaches is not only so that I and my team of coaches can coach these executives to have this impact, but then I have a whole slurry of other coaches that are, are working towards that same goal and that same movement of eliminating fear, accessing love and connection and a heart-based leadership. And so, Mildred, do you remember there was that one cohort where I think we got into the one of the deepest conversations ever on, you know, race and and people of color and what's happening to students who are, you know, being imprisoned for skipping class at school. Like just insanity. And, and we, there was so much energy in that conversation that I think we, we just completely forgot about the curriculum for a good hour. (laughs) But the beautiful thing is like, this is the real learning. It doesn't matter what it says on the page of the manual. Like what really matters about what happens at Raleigh Coaching Academy is people come in and they are asked the question, 
who was I before I started to label myself? You're speaking to this whole concept of white fragility, right? It's like, why can't we have these conversations? Why isn't it the norm that when it's something that or someone that we don't understand, we seek to build a relationship with them to better understand? And what is blocking us from doing that? So that was a, a very enlightened conversation. And it's and it's a way that these things can play out in a very positive way, right? Because we're all learning. What I've learned in working in corporate America as a learning and talent development professional in human resources and working in concert with the diversity and inclusion uh, rep who was really put in place to design ways that we could not only recruit, but retain people of color in a historic all white kind of industry, uh, the uh, energy industry, we were recruiting well-qualified, well-trained, very professional individuals of color to work for this company. And it just seemed like we put them in the chair on the Ferris wheel. And when we turned our head, when they got on the other side, they fell out. So we, we continued to bring in the numbers and we were kicking them out on the other side of the Ferris wheel. And so, yes, we have to be deliberate about putting in programs and mechanisms and ways for the top leadership to look at their systems and make changes. And so that, that intellectual approach to dealing with this is necessary to develop that top down mandate. But if we don't hit the population from the neck down, when we put these systems in place, they're not sustained, they're not maintained, and oftentimes we put people in precarious and sometimes dangerous situations by attempting to infiltrate a system that isn't prepared and their level of readiness or consciousness is so low that you could be more damaging putting a person of color or a person that has a a sexuality or sexual orientation that differs from the majority in that population. You can put them at risk more so than, and who wants to be the poster child for that type of experience? Yeah. And I want to say, going back to what Don touched on earlier, we have an election coming up. And I, I get so frustrated with this notion of like, well, you know, in business, you should really stay away from politics because how can you politicize humanity? How can you politicize people dying? I mean, that, that's the whole rhetoric that is stemming from that alternative facts way of describing what's real. And so I think what we need is we just need to all reassess like what what is real. We have a president that won't hang the presidential portrait of a African American past president in the White House. If that isn't politicizing racism, what is? Right. And the thing about it is so if you just take that snapshot, right, of what Mildred just said, and you don't do anything about policy difference and lower taxes, high taxes, wall, no wall. You just take that snapshot. And then you take the other snapshot about our current president. And he rose to power with birtherism yes. by claiming that an African-American president wasn't a citizen. Now, stop sentence. 
don't even talk about lower taxes and I want to do this pro business, all that's fine. But when we're talking about race at the highest levels of our country, then we have to talk about the fact that structurally we've allowed the last four or five years to that to be okay. And people now who listen to the president, there was a guy on one of the news stations that said, if our president is not wearing a mask, then I don't want to wear a mask. Okay. That lets us understand the level of influence, the rhetoric of all of our leaders has on the fabric within our country. People always want to talk to me and debate the policies and principles. That's fine to have that discussion. What we have to get back to at all levels of government, all levels of leadership, back to your comment on authenticity, is what is true and what is not true. And the rhetoric of leaders matters. The rhetoric of me as a CEO matters to the people that are in our company. So that means I have a higher level of accountability not a lower standard of I get to say what I want. And exactly. so we have, to, we have to flip it around again that our leaders have to, on all sides of the aisle, it just so happens our president is a obvious example, right? But it's across the spectrum. The fact of the matter is we have to raise the consciousness of leadership language, and that gets back to the language of inclusion. How do we learn to talk in a way that we're not nipping at each other and poking each other at every conversation. Yeah. It brings me back to 2008. I went to Montreal for a coaching ICF, International Coaching Federation Conference. And it was my first time in Canada. And I remember going through the airport and, and just seeing the, the magazine covers with Barack Obama's face because he had recently been elected the first African-American president of the United States. And I just remember like just my heart was just welling up with pride. And the Canadians were, were approaching all the Americans and they're like, congratulations, you must be so excited. Like Canada is so excited. And, you know, this is this is wonderful for everyone. And and then the pendulum swings back really, really, really strongly in the opposite direction. And so the only thing that I'm really holding on to right now is, is the hope and the belief that the pendulum will swing once again and that somehow it will foster some common ground. I'm not as optimistic, and I'll turn it over to Mildred. It, here's, my, here's, my, here's my thing on, on that. I think that the last several years is good from this regard. And a friend of mine said, well, aren't you for this current president to lower your taxes? You're in the upper, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I would never sell my humanity for lower taxes. So I, I don't really care, right? Like that's not how I vote, right? And some people do, some people don't like that. That's not how I vote. And I'm a cynical independent, just so we're clear. <laughs> like I, I, I have, I, I think we need term limits because I think all of them are full of yeah. across the board, right? Yeah. But what the last couple of years have shown us is who we really are as a country. And that's what we've got to deal with, right? Right now, we're almost over the, that disbelief, is this who we really are? And we're almost to the point to where now we can flip it. And there's enough people of all backgrounds, ages, races, colors, generations that want it to be different 
that I do think the pendulum may or may not occur in the White House, but I do feel it and see it on the ground. When I'm talking to young people, when I'm talking to business people, that, that people are starting to have had enough of not seeing human decency as a representative of our country. And that's the part where I am with you. And I, and I do see some, some, some hope for optimism. Yeah. What about you, Mildred? I'm saddened that we are a country that was not only, I mean, we were founded by immigrants. And when I think about the migration patterns of Africans, right? Other countries, I mean, well before forced migration to the United States, Africans had power in Asian nations. They've held power in Spain. They've held power. I mean, we have migrated throughout this world since antiquity in the Roman culture. I mean, it is just, and you've never heard of any of the types of just devastation in any of those nations as a result of those migration patterns. And here we are, shameful America, and we are having a hard time admitting that we're broken to the point that we are still stuck doing nothing about things that have been occurring since the 60s. And yet we're saying we're making progress because we've put policies in place and we've put people in places that didn't have access before. But the gap is ever widening. Then Don and I are the exception to uh, many of the things that are occurring. But Don and I also have first cousins that are suffering greatly. We have family members that have not had the access to opportunity that we've had. And they have been stuck in a system that does not support their growth or them getting better in this nation. So am I optimistic? I can't help but be given the work that I am attempting to really disseminate through Raleigh Coaching and other organizations that I have an opportunity to work with. And and I've got to arrive at there are people that I will have an opportunity to coach that can be changed as a result of our conversations and them becoming their best selves. And then that will, like you articulated, Kathleen, about the academy, and that will have uh, impact and repercussions down the line that will be of benefit to us. But we cannot take our foot off the pedal. We cannot assume that if we don't see it on the national news or if we don't see it blatantly, that it doesn't exist. And we we have to be responsible enough to say, I have a role in this, regardless of the impact that it has on me directly. And um, we've got to be able to reach people below, below the neck to make sure that they are feeling that in a way and showing up differently in order for us to make the progress that we desire. Yeah. And the it's almost like the the roach concept, right? If you see one roach, you know there's got to be like hundreds behind the wall. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And they didn't come to the just... party by themselves. Exactly. So we got we to gotta smoke out those roaches. But before we go, I just wanted to give Don one, your your final thoughts on this episode. 
Well, one, thank you guys so much to, for having me and, and Mildred for reaching out for our conversation even yesterday so that when we talked today, we were just friends. Um, the final thing that I would say is that there's a lot of ed educational opportunities out there, right? And we've built a course for um, diversity and inclusion uh, beyond the checkbox. And it's basically a foundational e-learning course about DNI. And it is not just about race, it's about generational, it's about neurodiversity. It's about how to build out programming because I think if you get focused on getting smarter, if you get focused on increasing your proximity to others that are different than you, you're going to be a more powerful ally because it's going to be based on the emotion and the education. The emotion is great and powerful, but when it's combined with education, you're going to tell a more powerful story uh, to advocate on behalf of others and use your strength for that common good. And the thing I would say is if I can be a benefit to any of the teammates that you guys are working with or anything that you guys are doing, I 100% want to do it. So the answer is yes. It's just a function of getting it on the schedule, right? So all you have to do is, hey, I wonder if Don will help us with the answer is yes. And we just got to figure out the, the calendar. So thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So Mildred, what, what are some of the offerings that you have going on right now that are supporting this mission? I have an opportunity not only through my coaching to really help leaders to better understand the role that they play in working to address these issues in each of the sectors in which they're involved. But, you know, I work, you know, through the uh, U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Um, we're writing policy. We are trying to create the number of things that our nation needs to address and how we are looking at things from that perspective, as well as the work that Don is doing, the front of the uh, the C-suite, and then uh, there's the front of the classroom. And this is a multi-pronged approach. You can't do this work by doing one thing. And so we have to think about how do you reach individuals where they are, recognizing the fact that we're all in many different levels and many different spaces and places. And so it takes your convening of minds like this to really think about what does that multi-pronged, multi-level approach really look like? And how do we bring that to the world in a way that it's beneficial? So I'm glad to have a, a opportunity to be a part of this. I call it a brainstorming session because goodness only knows what could come out of uh, just this opportunity to just think about it in a public way. So thank you so much, Kathleen, for the opportunity. You know, in, in the way to kind of wrap up this conversation that could go on for days, I want to say I'm grateful that I have brought the two of you, Don and, and Mildred, together so that you can know each other and collaborate and further solidify all the different networks that are working towards this common goal. And I would love to be involved in any way I can. Perhaps this is just the beginning of, of other podcasts. Thank you, Mildred and Donald. I can only hope that having conversations like this can help in some small way. I doubt any of you who are listening to this would consider yourself a racist, but maybe you've put up with a joke that you felt like didn't really mean anything. Maybe you thought less of a job candidate for the color of their skin, gender, or sexual orientation. Maybe when you saw a police brutality video on the news, you thought, well, there's probably another side to the story. 
I know for me, I recognize more and more as I learn about diversity and microaggressions that I too have my own inherent bias that I'm working to overcome. I hope that together we can make progress. Thank you for listening, everyone. Please share this important content, if you will, on social media. You can find out more on Mildred Edwards at meexecutiveconsulting.com. You can find out more on Donald Thompson at donaldthompson.com and thediversitymovement.com. And check out his podcasts, Diversity Beyond the Checkbox and the Donald Thompson Podcast. We'll be sure to put all of this information in the show notes. Intro and outro music for this podcast was provided by a dear friend and former client, the incredibly talented Autumn Rose Brand. You can find out more about her and her music at autumnbrandviolin.com. This episode was edited and produced by Earfluence. For more on full-service podcast production for your business or personal brand, visit earfluence.com. Thank you, and be kind to one another.